Uh, thank you for coming to today's panel, which is called Pot Politics, the New Marijuana Industry. Uh, we have a, some really talented and experienced people on this panel from throughout the U.S., and I think uh, hopefully we're able to start a conversation and answer any questions that you might have. We're going to have a pretty free-flowing panel. If you have a question in the middle, go ahead, raise your hand. Uh, we'll also have a Q&A at the end. Um, but very brief introductions of the panel, and uh, then we're just going to introduce ourselves and, and maybe set out on the conversation. But directly to my left is uh, Brian Vicente, and he is one of the leading uh, marijuana industry attorneys uh, in Denver uh, and one of the authors of Amendment 64, which legalized uh, a recreational pot in, in Colorado. Uh, to Brian's left is Meg Collins, and she is the head of one of the biggest cannabis industry groups in the state and probably one of the biggest cannabis industry groups in the U.S., right? <laughs> because this is a very We're limited industry. <laughs> to Meg's left, we have uh, Bo Kilmer, and he lives in California but has experience in uh, working with marijuana throughout the U.S., really, and he's bringing a lot of insight to this, uh, to this panel. And uh, to Bo's left is Ari, Ari Hoffnung, and he is a local who has experience on Wall Street and in City Hall. Uh, so we are going to get this started. Uh, real quick about me, my name is Ricardo Baca. Uh, I'm the marijuana editor at the Denver Post. And yeah, as Steve said, I started The, the Cannabist. Uh, check it out, highly recommended. <laughs> Thecannabist.co. And uh, yeah, it's just a, it's a site like nothing you've ever seen before because it has legitimate journalism alongside you know marijuana criticism and the best glass and vape pens and desktop vaporizers <laughs> alongside you know important uh, you know videos of uh, of just the crazy culture happening around this movement but definitely check out the cannabis and and yes as meg mentioned we also have strain reviews we have two pot critics so that's important <laughs> all right i'm going to toss this mic to brian vicente I might actually stand so I can enjoy the view and, and see everyone. Um, well, thanks so much for having me here today. Um, so uh, I'm a, a little bit of a unique animal in that I'm, I'm an attorney, and I've been practicing primarily in the air, uh, area of marijuana law for about uh, a little over a decade. Um, during that time, you know, we've seen a lot of, of positive changes, and I'll kind of talk about you know how that came about. And I, I try to look at a lot of this through a criminal justice lens, not only because you know, we're here at this prestigious school. But that was a lot of my training. I was with, uh, you know, working with the public defenders and, and things like that about a, a decade ago or 15 years ago. And, um, you know, I remember one time in particular where, uh, you know, I was, it was sort of my job to, to go in and out of courtrooms in Denver. And, and it was just uh, stunning, you know, the number of people being put through the system for marijuana crimes over and over and over again. And, and they're primarily people of color. And, you know, Denver's a diverse area, but there's a lot of white people. So it just, it struck me as just fundamentally flawed what was going on uh, with that system. It was very impactful upon me as a young attorney um, while I you know, sought out to kind of change these laws. Um, I just wanted to pause for a minute and kind of reflect on, you know, with the significance of what's going on in Colorado, what's going on in these other states that have adopted similar uh, marijuana legalization laws. Um, I think it's, it's sort of unprecedented and that we have this really unique intersection of a massive social change, right? We've, we've changed our criminal laws to no longer criminalize adults for possessing marijuana, uh, which is very important, but that, that is sort of collides with this economic opportunity, right? Because we didn't just legalize marijuana. We also 
uh, created this market, right, and, and regulated. And I'll talk about what that means. So I, I think it's, it's kind of tough to look back at history and see uh, periods where that sort of intersection has occurred. And, and you know, how is that market going to look? Is it going to be Joe Camel? Is it going to be really positive? What's it going to look like? Um, a lot of interesting questions. And we're about a year in to regulated marijuana sales for adults, right? And I'm not talking about sick people. I'm talking about anyone 21 and over. Um, so I think we have some, po- you know, reflections on what that year has been like, but we're only a year in, right? So we can't say we have hard data that says that this, that looks that way, or this is the long-term play for New York or wherever. <coughs> but, um, but we certainly have, um, it's certainly been a, an interesting experience in Colorado and positive in many ways. Um, and I think, you know, this is something that, that is going to be adopted by more and more states uh, after Colorado, uh, we were the first to legalize marijuana, although we actually did it at the same night as Washington State, but we beat them by a time zone, so I like to claim that we're number one. Um, you know, we say, we've, we've since then seen Oregon and Alaska uh, and D.C. adopt sort of similar legalization laws, and I'll talk about how those laws look and, and why I think they will probably be spreading to different states uh, and perhaps different, different countries. So a year into Colorado's regulated sales, um, this law actually passed in, in, in November 2012, and sort of immediately uh, it allowed Coloradans, 21 and over, to, to possess marijuana. But the sales, it took about a year for the government to set up the system for, for sales. So, um, so that's kind of where we're at. And how's that first year gone? Um, I think it's been a pretty phenomenal success. And uh, in terms of um, job creation, in terms of tax revenue, in terms of better use of law enforcement resources, in terms of a relative stagnant level of use. We haven't seen, you know, teen use skyrocket or anything like that. It seems to be going quite well, and that's not just my opinion. That's the New York Times and the Brookings Institute and the Denver Post and all these various, you know, thought leaders have kind of taken the time to look at, at the Colorado model to see if it uh, is working or not, and that, that seems to be kind of what their, what their takeaway is. Um, so what, what happened in Colorado and subsequently in these other states is, um, you know, I was one of the two real primary authors of this first legalization law, and we, we struggled with how, how are you going to pitch this to people so they understand what we're trying to do. And so we really tried to, we called this campaign the campaign to regulate marijuana like alcohol, right? Because if you mentioned the word legalization, it's kind of amorphous. And what does legalization mean? Is it growing on street corners? Can kids have it? What does that mean? And we said, no, we're going to treat this just like alcohol. Adults, 21 and over, can purchase it from licensed facilities. They're going to pay taxes up for on it. They have to get ID'd. It's grown in a way that is, abides by certain laws and and codes just like alcohol. You can't use it in, pub, uh, in public and use it in drive and things like that. Uh, and really, I think that helped crystallize this for voters in our state. So what happened in Colorado is kind of three things. One, we changed our criminal laws, right? So we, we allowed adults 21 over to possess small amounts of marijuana and also to grow small amounts of marijuana. Um, they can't sell it, right? The same way I can't sell beer that I brew at my house. Um, but, you know, so that, those are the kind of the, the criminal justice shifts that we saw. The second piece uh, is we set up a regulatory structure around the, the cultivation, around the sale, uh, around the you know, sort of infusions that go on in this space. And I think that was, um, you know, I created this opportunity for commerce, but it also took the black market and uh, moved those sales into a regulated market. People that were purchasing this product, it's now labeled, and they know what they're buying, right? And it's taxed, and it's sold by people that are uh, educated on it and, and are, are um, able to actually sell this product in our system. And I think that was important for a number of reasons. One, it sent a message to the federal government that, uh, you know, Colorado sort of has this under control. We have hundreds of pages of code that these, these, these businesses, and there's hundreds of marijuana stores in Colorado, need to follow, right? Uh, they can't sell to underage people, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think that that was key in sort of um, 
allowing the giving the federal government cover to allow Colorado to move forward. And as one of the guys, I spent 10 years essentially working on this measure and getting on the ballot. We finally won. And we were really curious, what are the feds going to do? Are they going to come in and uh, uh, arrest everyone? What are they going to do? And I think the fact that we set up this regulatory structure sort of sent this message like, hey, let us experiment with this within these confines, within these guardrails. Uh, and as such, you know, it's worked pretty well. Um, another thing that happened at that time uh, in terms of regulating this product is our, our, our <coughs> governor and, and our, our legislatures, who, by the way, were radically against uh, the legalizations. And even though we won by a 10% margin, very few of the elected officials uh, endorsed this measure, and our governor is very outspoken against it. But to their credit, when it passed, they said, wow, this passed by kind of a landslide. And uh, we are going to actually enact the will of the voters. And what they did, what I think, was very smart. They got uh, stakeholders in the room, right? So they got um, law enforcement, and they got community activists, and they got marijuana activists, and they got marijuana, medical marijuana business owners. And they got them all together. And, you know, it was one of those pinch-me moments for me because, uh, you know, as someone that defended uh, folks in court, you know, the only time I would get together with police prosecutors to talk about marijuana is the conversation was how long they were going to put my client in jail for. And now we're sitting in this room talking about literally what size font should be on the, the label of the marijuana brown. Like, what size font? Like, it was, it was, it was mind-blowing, uh, pinch-me moments. And, 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 and very thoughtful, right? If you're going to regulate an industry, talk to the people that are working in this industry and where are the loopholes and how can, they, uh, how can we tighten those up. And so I think that set up this system that actually works quite well. So that's the second piece that the Colorado voters put into place with the regulated model. The first is criminal justice shifts. And the third is we legalized hemp. So hemp's been illegal in our country for many, many years. Now Colorado has a, what's beginning to be a sort of thriving industry around hemp, which is the same plant as marijuana. I won't necessarily get into that people, unless people have questions. But so that's sort of what went down. Um, the significance of, of this, I think, is, um, is pretty profound. You know, we had marijuana illegal at the federal level since 1937, illegal at the, st at the state levels since, you know, the early teens uh, in Colorado since about 1917. So this is a Marijuana prohibition was on the books for a really long time, and what Colorado voters did was, was somewhat, you know, revolutionary. Um, and, you know, in many ways, the heart of the war on drugs is a war on marijuana, right? The longstanding government's war on drugs, um, where we still arrest about 700,000 Americans every year uh, for marijuana, right? And almost all of that is marijuana possession, so like having a joint or whatnot. And so that is obviously a very time-consuming, uh, uh, you know, task for law enforcement, it's very costly to arrest that many people, uh, and it, of course, impacts those people's lives. And I'll talk a little more about the collateral consequences. I know New York and other states have worked to, towards decriminalization, um, but there are still civil uh, and sometimes you know, serious criminal consequences to having that arrest on your, on your record. Um, and, of course, and I'll kind of touch on this later, there's a pretty serious um, economic or some pretty serious um, demographic disparity in how these laws are enforced, and I kind of spoke about that at the beginning, but in terms of the racial, uh, racial impact of marijuana laws, it's pretty profound. And I think there's a real social justice reason that these laws need to be changed. So how did this, how, you know, facing down 80 years of prohibition, how did we get to this point in Colorado where Colorado voters were ready for this? Now Washington, Oregon, Alaska, and D.C. have come on board, and I predict, you know, we'll see probably five more states legalized in the next two years. Um, what we did was, a, it was essentially a 10-year project with myself and, and another individual started these nonprofits and, and, and worked to change marijuana laws and have a conversation about marijuana in, in our state of Colorado. Right? And we did this in, in two main ways. Um, one was we, we have the local ballot initiative process, right? So it's a, sort of a form of direct democracy where you get enough citizens to sign 
a petition and you can put something on the ballot to sort of bypassing the legislature and taking it right to the voters. And we did that systematically in town after town after town, changing local uh, marijuana laws, right? Because we have local marijuana laws, state marijuana laws, federal marijuana laws. And we knew that changing the marijuana laws in Breckenridge or Telluride or even Denver might not shift things immediately. Um, it sent a really strong message and it sparked this conversation among voters about you know, why do these laws keep passing, yet police are still arresting people for marijuana? What is this all about? Do our laws make sense? And that was sort of a taboo discussion, right? You can talk about marijuana for many, many years until we started forcing this conversation. The first, so the first piece was ballot initiatives. The second piece is we started really pushing uh, and defending medical marijuana patients. And this is something I did really and cut my teeth on as a young lawyer, was defending people with AIDS and cancer. And I, one individual in particular has since died. Um, you know, was a uh, weighed less than 100 pounds, and he, he, he simply could not afford the medical marijuana card. Or later on, he could afford the medical marijuana card, but the police were still arresting him. And so it was, I mean, it was just disgusting, right, to use criminal justice resources to come after this guy who was clearly using marijuana because he was incredibly ill. And so what did I do with those cases? Well, with his permission, we just publicized the hell out of them. We would send press release after press release. We were on the front page of papers for, for, for days in, days out, about you know, this guy being prosecuted. And that just led to this conversation. You know, pre prior to that, marijuana was, uh, you know, the substance that you were told that, you know, you use it and your, your brain's on drugs and it's like an egg and it's frying and it's terrible. But now you see that this, this guy, you know, this sick guy is finding benefit from it. And if he finds benefit from it, should we be putting it in jail? Uh, and, and in fact, if he finds benefit, maybe it's not as bad as I heard, right? Because we've been sort of systematically taught marijuana is horrible and now you're realizing it's actually okay for, for these people. So, um, advocacy work for Damien, that individual, as well as others. We set up this regulatory structure around medical marijuana where people could buy it from stores. And I think that that sort of fostered the conversation in Colorado where they saw these medical marijuana stores where this product's being sold. Um, we can do it for sick people. Why can't we do it for adults 21 and over? The sky hasn't fallen, and we've been doing it for a couple of years for sick people. So um, within that, uh, you know, we push certain messages, right, in order to, to reach the public. Um, we certainly talked about law enforcement resources. I talked about that earlier. We're still using a lot of law enforcement resources to harass and arrest people, sometimes jail, people for marijuana. Um, we also talked about tax revenue. You know, uh, Colorado's going to bring in about 70, 60 or $70 million in new tax revenue this year um, from the recreational sale of marijuana. And that, you know, is a pretty big number for our state. Uh, but also, where was that money going previously, right? It was going directly into the hands of the underground market and cartels. It's not like people weren't buying marijuana five, ten years ago. But, but now it's actually being taxed by the state and captured, and, and as per the way we wrote the law, some of it's a significant amounts being used for public schools and other things. So uh, it's interesting. But another piece that we, we, we latched into was this um, racial disparity of these arrests. I talked about this a little bit at the beginning, um, but one of my jobs as the co-director of this campaign to legalize, um, in addition to many other things, I was the Latino outreach guy. And so Latinos are a group that is, um, you know, it's growing in Colorado. It's an important voter base. And, um, you know, I, sort of, I guess in my naive state, I, I thought I dreamed up the perfect message, and I contacted this prominent uh, poet, Javier Cecilia, who's a, a Mexican uh, poet whose son was killed in the, by drug war violence, and he, he's written very, very eloquently about it. And, he, and we got him to perf uh, record a PSA, right, which I wrote thinking that I was so great. And, uh, you know, it was, it was basically all about how we're going to get the cartels, and, you know, this is a way to, to you know, clean up the system and, and push cartels out of the marijuana trade. And, and so forth. And uh, I took that to the, the prominent um, Spanish-speaking uh, radio channels, 
in in Colorado, and I sat down with these guys, and they they said they would not air it, right? And I said, "What do you mean you won't air this?" And they they were legitimately scared of cartel retribution coming after them if they were to air this piece. And so I was kind of like, "Well, what do you guys think we should do?" And thankfully, you know, they they uh, scripted very sort of thoughtful, uh, you know, radio PSAs about you know tax revenue and, and stopping the arrest of young uh, people of color and so forth. And we we aired the hell out of those. And our numbers among Latinos jumped like 30 points. It was crazy the amount of support that we got there. So, I mean, it's just there's, there's a, a degree of, re, uh, you know, res, it just resonates with certain populations when, they, when these stats and, and figures are kind of pointed out to them. So um, kind of winding down, what has been the effect on, on criminal justice a year in? Um, you know, what, what, what sort of statistics have we seen? Again, a lot of these numbers are new. Um, but I can tell you this. I mean, for, for years, Colorado arrested about 10 to 12,000 people for marijuana every single year. Um, we don't do that anymore, right? So police are using using their time in, in other ways. Um, also, you know, not tons of people go to jail for marijuana, but we're not seeing those sort of same uh, numbers at all. Um, and then, of course, we have a lot of, you know, tax revenue and other things coming in around public education. We are seeing a little bit more um, DUID, right, driving the influence of drugs, marijuana. We're not seeing increased fatalities. In fact, fatalities have gone down. It's sort of interesting. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of speculation about what that means. It, the, the state sort of has also hired many, many more drug recognition experts to go after people for driving while under the influence of marijuana. So is there a, a, you know, what's the effect there? Are there actually more people driving high or are there just more police looking for people driving high? It's, it's kind of hard to say. Um, so, you know, those are the numbers we're seeing. And, the, and where I'll kind of conclude is, you know, while we still have these 700,000 arrests going on in our country, um, it's not just, you know, the, the effect on those individuals in terms of a, a criminal, uh, having a criminal drug record, although it's certainly not, a good thing to have on your record. But we're also see, we also see asset forfeiture when people are busted for marijuana. We see um, difficulty in getting professional licensure, maybe into getting into schools like, like this college. Um, we see difficulty in the military, student loans. We have issues with uh, uh, people being deported. So I think if we shift these marijuana laws, as we've done in Colorado, we, we, don't, really don't, we don't give people that baggage anymore that they have to carry around. Um, so to just conclude, um, I think Colorado's done a really good job setting a model for how uh, marijuana can be regulated. It's a, it's a strong shift away from the war on drugs mentality, and I think it's done a lot of good things for our state. I think um, we're probably going to see uh, you know, California, Massachusetts, Nevada, Arizona all legalize marijuana in 2016, uh, and I think they're going to do it, uh, and the language will be actually very similar to how the language looks in Colorado, so kind of what I laid out. Um, so I'll kind of conclude there. Thank you. Actually, this uh, this week we're looking at getting the final numbers for uh, the, the sales, total marijuana sales in Colorado 2014, and that number will definitely top um, $600, $600 million. Uh, total sales. Yeah, total sales between recreational and medical, so it, it's big business. Um, next up, we have Meg Collins, and Meg, again, is the executive director of the Cannabis Business Alliance. And I want to thank you all for being here this morning. Uh, five years ago, I would never have guessed I'd be at the uh, John Jay School talking about marijuana uh, with this distinguished panel. Uh, I'm often asked how I got into the marijuana industry. And a little bit about my background. I've been in government affairs and public policy for my entire career. And so when I was uh, offered somewhat jokingly the opportunity to uh, 
head up a trade association, the Cannabis Business Alliance, and focus on marijuana, I was like, that is fabulous. Because how often, if you're in my line of work, do you have the opportunity to help build the legal and regulatory structure and framework for a brand new industry? Um, surrounded by lots of entrepreneurs, really smart people, passionate advocates like by, uh, Brian Vicente and others. Um, and I happen to be a sucker for rulemakings. I love regulatory work. And we spent a great deal of time in Colorado uh, working on developing the legislation and then the regulatory framework for the industry that we now have. And I think that we have done, Brian referenced the Colorado model, I think that Colorado has done a spectacular job in putting together the initial framework for the industry. And also, more importantly, when you get into implementation, which is where the devil is in the details, the state and its regulatory body, the Marijuana Enforcement Division, has been very nimble to address some of the unintended consequences that have uh, arisen out of recreational marijuana sales in particular. Um, I'll speak specifically about edibles, which you read about in the paper all the time. Colorado had a couple of tragic incidences, um, one of which was by a young man who was told how to consume an edible, and it looked like a cookie, and so he ate it like a cookie and had a very adverse reaction to it. The state's response was, instead of declaring a moratorium or a ban on edibles, was to pull the industry together along with stakeholders that weren't fans of marijuana and others to see how do we address this problem. So after months of uh, stakeholder work and a, a number of meetings, if it looks like a cookie, it's not going to be more than 10 milligrams of marijuana, so what, of THC. So what was, what was going on is that the, during the rulemaking, we put in that a serving was 10 milligrams of THC and that a package was limited to 100 milligrams of THC. And what manufacturers were doing was 10 milligrams of THC was looked upon as a very low to moderate dose of marijuana. Well, in all those discussions, and they were robust, we did not take into account the novice consumer, which is the new term of art, and people that had never uh, had marijuana before. And so pretty early on in the discussions, it was decided that if it looked like a cookie or it looked like a Reese's peanut butter cup or truffle, then it was going to be limited to 10 milligrams. Or if it was a candy bar, such as a Hershey bar, those square, squares had to be easily scored and separated, and each one was 10 milligrams or less. And that was an effort to uh, not have people trying to cut a cookie into 10 pieces if it's 100, 100 milligram cookies. Along with that, the industry embarked on a very uh, aggressive education campaign. Um, Right when marijuana, when recreational marijuana was starting on January 1, 2014, the industry groups and others put out a pamphlet that I think Brian provided that gave people, the residents of Colorado as well as tourists, you know, what the laws were, how to consume, where not to consume. Um, the Cannabis Business Alliance, which I had, has worked on the edibles information handout, which are on many seats, and I brought a ton of them if you want them, so that you could see that the, the motto is start low and go slow. I mean, it, it, 
edibles react very differently uh, with different metabolisms. And it, they take a long time with some people to take effect. And so, you know, we want people to have a Pinot Grigio experience, not a 151 rum experience, <laughs> because it, it's not in anybody's interest to be in a retail business, which is going to make people uncomfortable. So we want everybody to have a pleasant experience. Um, there's also been um, campaigns uh, that folks in Brian's organization are running, the Committee for Responsible Cannabis Regulation. Again, using the tagline, start low and go slow. We're really, we're really pushing that. Um, I think that you know through these efforts and through the state's willingness to be very nimble and responsive, we've built a wonderful partnership which um, which I think in a new industry such as this, particularly with the, the aspect of the federal illegality, is important at the state level that you work very closely with your industry partners um, as, as state officials. And there's been a real willingness to reach out to industry, and industry has reached out to the state when we're, we're running into problems. Um, there, the state also is, education is really really important, and it has been all the way through this process. The state has allocated uh, $4.5 million for its campaign of education, which just started rolling out about a month ago, and its, uh, its tagline is good to know, and it's a little bit folksy um, and colorful, um, but it goes through in a folksy and colorful way uh, what, what the rules are, and I mean, it's, really, it's very catchy, so it, it, so it stays with you. And <clears throat> industry was invited to be part of the discussions with CDPHE, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, who is overseeing this campaign to review the different requests for proposals from the different public relations firm and also to eventually select who was going to be the, the winning candidate of sorts. And then several industry folks are sitting on the panel that keeps reviewing these these education efforts. And I think, you know, that's that's important because in the beginning we complained a little bit that sometimes industry there were a lot of people on different panels that knew nothing about the marijuana industry and why wasn't the marijuana industry on some of these panels. So that situation has resolved itself. And I think, you know, in large part because it's a professional industry, it's uh, it's a business. Um, it's a business that's out in the bright daylight run by very, very smart people. It's very expensive to be in the industry. Um, so, you know, the culture is shifting a bit from, you know, your traditional images of folks that may be into marijuana to, you know, it's a business. And it's going to be run like a business, and it has to conform to the laws that, you know, have been enacted to provide boundaries and sideboards. Um, and it's really exciting. It's been, it's, I've really had a lot of fun. Uh, it's been a lot of work, <laughs> but it's been, a, it's been a lot of fun. So, and with that, um, I'm going to turn it over to Bo. It's worth noting, <clears throat> thank you, Mike. It's worth noting that, you know, the, the New York Times has been spending a lot of time and resources in Colorado in the last two years, uh, definitely more than previously. Um, but, you know, some of these educational campaigns are in, in direct uh, relation to 
you know, Maureen Dowd coming to Colorado and eating too much of an infused edible and feeling like she died in the Four Seasons hotel room she was staying in and somebody forgot to tell her that she died. And, and it is funny and it became an instant punchline, but it's also serious and, and scary. And the, for those of us who have consumed too much of, of any drug, you know, marijuana, um, it's, it, it can be an intense experience. And we had an interesting back and forth with, with uh, Maureen that we'll get into later. But yeah. Uh, right now, we're going to get to Bo Kilmer, who's the co-director of RAND's uh, Drug Policy Research Center. Great. Well, thank you, and good morning, everyone. Uh, yes, I'm uh, a researcher at the RAND Corporation. Uh, for those of you who don't know, we're a nonprofit, nonpartisan research organization, which really tries to improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis. I've been around for more than 65 years. I co-direct our Drug Policy Research Center, which just celebrated its 25th anniversary. We do work on all, uh, all aspects of substance use and drug policy. And I uh, want to make it very clear that RAND does not have an official position uh, on marijuana policy. Um, but I have to say, me personally, I've been spending a lot of time kind of doing work in this area over the past uh, five, ten years. And it really is complex and controversial. I mean, there are compelling arguments on both sides, and you heard some of them from Brian today, or Brian earlier. I mean, we did some work for the White House trying to estimate the size of the black market for marijuana nationally. And this is in 2010. The ballpark figure is close to $40 billion a year. Granted, there's a lot of uncertainty there, and that was 2010. But there's a lot of money going to criminal organizations. And in terms of thinking about uh, some of the harms associated with prohibition, you know, Brian touched on some of them uh, with respect to getting a criminal record. I mean, people will spend time. I mean, some people, depending on where you are in the country, may spend some time behind bars. A lot of people just end up getting fined. But even the fines can be significant. I mean, for example, if you and you guys, I'm sorry, I didn't, I wasn't here for Karen Martin's uh, speech yet or talk yesterday. But I mean, if you find somebody even $200 for possession, I mean, if you're working a minimum wage job, that could be a, a good chunk of your take-home pay for a whole week. And on top of that, there are these collateral consequences. Um, you know, if you get a drug conviction, it can be harder to get financial aid uh, to go to school. It can be harder to get into uh, public housing. Depending on what state you're in, it can be harder to adopt kids. I mean, there are a lot of compelling arguments about why prohibition is creating harms for individuals. And also, to the extent that we have a black market, it's not a regulated product. On the other hand, the people that are against legalization, I mean, they're concerned and because marijuana is not a benign substance. There are health consequences associated especially with heavy use. And there are also worries that with legalization there will be lower prices and uh, increased availability, which will increase youth consumption and also increase dependence. Now, granted, marijuana dependence is not the same as heroin dependence in terms of its harms to individuals and to society, but there still are people that do run into significant issues with their marijuana use. There's also concerns that, uh, that if you were to legalize marijuana, that it could create this industry, and that this industry would ultimately be focusing on promoting heavy use. And the reason why people believe that is because the 80-20 rule is in effect. If you look at all past month marijuana users in the United States, 20% of them, and those are the individuals who use on a daily to near daily basis, they account for 80% of the consumption. It's the same for alcohol. 20% of the users account for 80% of the consumption. So if you think about how the market could potentially evolve and you want to make serious money in this industry, you're going to want to target that 20%. And you're, you're going to want to make sure that people continue to use at levels that may not necessarily be safe. So there are compelling arguments on both sides here. But uh, I really want to kind of take a step back, and Brian alluded to this a little bit, about what, how unprecedented uh, kind of where we are, uh, the, the events that have been happening. I mean, in, uh, you know, in November of 2012, the voters in Colorado and Washington, they not only voted to remove the prohibition on marijuana, I mean, they actually allowed 
for for-profit companies to come in and get involved. And in December of 2013, Uruguay became the first country in the world to legalize marijuana. Now, for some people, that's confusing because they think, well, didn't we already legalize, or wasn't marijuana already legalized in the Netherlands? Um, that's not the case. Yes, if you're, over, if, you're in one, if you're in Amsterdam and you're over 18, you can walk into one of those coffee shops and buy up to five grams because they have an official policy of not enforcing the law against small-scale transactions. So you can think about it being legal in the front door. However, it's still illegal to grow and sell marijuana to those coffee shops. So it's actually illegal in the back door. And what that does is it means there's still a black market there, and, that, and that, what that does is it ends up inflating the prices. So if you're trying to project what would happen with legalization in the United States, you can't just look to the Netherlands to get insights. But one thing you have to keep in mind with all of this also is that it's still illegal under federal law. And after these initiatives passed in November of 2012, no one was quite sure about what the federal government was going to do. And it wasn't until August of 2013 that the U.S. Uh, Department of Justice released a memo indicating for the time being that they weren't going to block the implementation efforts in Colorado, Washington, and other states as long as they had strong regulatory, uh, regulatory enforcement systems in place. But they made it very clear that they weren't legalizing marijuana at the federal level. And in fact, uh, the memo that came out uh, basically laid out a list of guidelines for federal prosecutors, indicating that if you're going to take one of these marijuana cases, here are some of the things that should guide your decisions. You know, if this is an entity that's uh, supplying to minors, you should go after them. If they're serving as a front for organized crime, you should go after them. If they're contributing to diversion to other states, they should maybe make it to the top of the priority list. But realize what this did. This memo not only sent a signal to those in Colorado and Washington, it also sent a signal to other states and to other countries that for the time being, the Obama administration was willing to tolerate potentially large for-profit companies to come in and produce a federally prohibited drug as long as they play by the rules. This really did send a signal, and I've watched it kind of open up conversations in other places. I've been invited to moderate panels in places where they said, if the memo would have said something different, we probably wouldn't even be having this session. You really are seeing much more discussion about this, and then sure enough, in uh, uh, November of 2014, you saw legalization passed in Oregon, it passed in Alaska, and, and also uh, legalization, but not necessarily a commercial option, uh, was uh, passed by the voters in Washington, D.C. It'll be very interesting to kind of see how that all plays out with Congress uh, there. Um, but, you know, you need to, you're gonna keep, if you think you're hearing a lot about marijuana now, just wait. You're going to continue to hear a lot about this, especially through 2016. You're going to see more of these initiatives uh, on the ballot. Um, one, in one place uh, where I've actually been spending a lot of time uh, over the past few months has been Vermont. Vermont has always had a very high prevalence rate for marijuana, and last year uh, you know, one of their senators had introduced a, uh, an, uh, a bill to legalize marijuana. And they kind, of, they kind of saw the writing on the wall and thought, well, that, you know, there's going to be more uh, and additional bills are going to be introduced. Um, so in May of 2014, uh, the governor signed a bill in the law indicating that he wanted a study done to help them think through some of the options and issues surrounding legalization. In fact, trying to have some work done so that it could actually serve as a foundation for the debate. And so as a researcher, I mean, this is one of these things that was reported by a small paper in Vermont. I think it got picked up by Yahoo News. I was reading about it, and I thought, oh, my gosh, like, this is the perfect RAND project, right? You're kind of helping people kind of think through the pros and cons of different issues. And kind of after a number of discussions, uh, we agreed that uh, it, it worked out that we were going to be able to do the report for them. So pretty much for the last six months, uh, along with seven other colleagues, we essentially produced a book 
for the state of Vermont, helping them not think, helping them not only kind of understand kind of what's happening with their market, and providing the numbers to serve as a foundation for the debate, but also helping them think through a number of the issues that are associated uh, with uh, uh, doing something other than prohibiting marijuana. Um, I didn't bring the full report, but we've got a summary of it. If you don't have it right now, we've got a few of them on the table. Um, but uh, you know, but parts of the report are very spe specific to Vermont, uh, but most of it isn't. There are three chapters um, uh, which really focus on all the issues associated with taxation, uh, so issues associated with uh, regulation, and then also the supply architectures. That is, if you're if you're going to go down this path and try something other than prohibiting marijuana, you have a lot of these choices. And so what I want to do for the next couple of minutes is kind of walk you through some of these different supply choices. I think <coughs> it's important when you're thinking about kind of the um, um, the pros and cons of kind of doing something other than prohibition, and you know. Uh, largely, the discussion in the United States has kind of it's been very binary. It's either been prohibition or kind of this for-profit model. And what we wanted people to understand is that there are these other options there. And let's be honest. First of all, no one knows the best way to do this. And that there are trade-offs with all of these options. And so what we wanted to do is we were trying to just kind of create a framework for kind of thinking about these issues. You know, for example, if you didn't want to prohibit marijuana um, and you wanted to try something else, I mean, one option would be to just allow home cultivation. Or, and in fact, home cultivation is allowed in uh, Colorado. It's not allowed in Washington. Um, we could also imagine you know, a scenario where you could allow kind of Spanish-style co-ops, where you could, uh, we, uh, groups, of, groups of users could get together. They could grow together. Um, it would reduce potentially a lot of the black market. Um, but, there, but on the other hand, you know, you're not going to eliminate the black market. And that kind of those models aren't necessarily going to bring in a fair amount of money. But even if you're a jurisdiction and you want to kind of allow for kind of large-scale production, you do have a lot of choices uh, between a kind of a prohibition and the for-profit model. For example, a state monopoly. A state could actually come in and do the production. You know, the advantages with that is that the state could control the price. It could get rid of the black market. And then it could also uh, reduce the probability that there would be advertising and marketing. Now, outside of the United States, this gets a lot more attention. But in the United States, it doesn't get a lot of play because of the federal prohibition. And if a state were to go down this path, it would, they would essentially be ordering their employees to violate federal law. So that option does, it does not get a lot of discussion in the United States. Um, we also talk about the report. There are other options. You, could, you know, A state could potentially create a public authority where the state would be in charge of determining who would be on that board, what some of the regulations would be. But that authority actually would be responsible for possessing and distributing the drug. So technically, the state wouldn't necessarily be uh, uh, at risk, because those employees wouldn't necessarily be at risk uh, for uh, being arrested. Uh, but there are also other options, too. You can imagine allowing, you know, limiting uh, the production and the distribution to nonprofit organizations, perhaps those that have a public health focus, or maybe those that focus on children's issues. Or if you even do want to create an industry, you perhaps could maybe limit it to socially responsible businesses. For example, in a number of states, you can register as a uh, uh, for-benefit corporation, or there's a, a separate designation, a B Corp. I mean, these are the uh, these are organizations that kind of focus on the triple bottom line of people, planet, and profits. And so the thing you need to decide is if you're going to create one of these industries, do you want it to be purely focused on maximizing profit? This is a choice that a lot of these jurisdictions have. Now, I want to be very clear, though, that when you're thinking about these options, the kind of the for-profit commercial model that we're seeing in Colorado and Washington and we'll, we'll expect to see soon in Oregon and Alaska, these aren't the most extreme options out there. And in fact, the most extreme option would be a state just kind of wiping marijuana away from its books and saying, we're not going to enforce it, any laws, and we're not going to regulate it. And in fact, there's nothing stopping a state from doing that. Um, 
And, and so it, it creates what we call in the report, what we refer to as the American federalism dilemma. And that is, if you kind of look at these large-scale production options and kind of what we know about liquor monopolies associated with alcohol, the one option that probably would be, this is arguable, I mean, it's an empirical question, but the one option that would probably be best for public health and could most likely reduce the harms associated with prohibition would be the state monopoly model, which isn't being discussed because you know state employees could be arrested. On the other hand, the, ex the, uh, the option which at the most extreme, which probably would be the worst for public health, and that is just kind of having no regulations and no enforcement, that actually a state could do that. So to be honest, I don't know how this is all going to play out in Vermont. I think they were one of the few states that kind of, in terms of kind of having a report done, and you know, I know there's a, a number of folks from Vermont that are actually in Colorado right now kind of talking to different people who've been involved in these discussions. Um, I think they're, they're going to be taking their time as they're thinking through these issues. Um, and it, Vermont quite possibly could be the first place to where this actually happens legislatively, not necessarily a ballot initiative. Um, but, uh, but, I mean, since we are here in New York, uh, New Yorkers are going to want to pay close attention to what happens in Vermont. And um, one of the things that we did in the report is we estimated the size of their market. And, uh, I mean, give or take, there are probably about 80,000 past month users uh, uh, in the state of Vermont. However, if you go just 50 miles outside of the Vermont borders, that market size increases by a factor of five. If you go 200 miles outside of the borders of Vermont, that market, uh, the market factor increases by 40. So the decision confronting Vermont, in addition to making, deciding about who's going to supply it, what the taxes are going to be, what the regulations are, Vermont has to decide how much of this other market do they want to, uh, do they want to supply in terms of people coming to Vermont. Do they want to make it easy for people <coughs> to be able to come to Vermont and take it away, or do they want to put up regulations? Do they want to try to ban out-of-state uh, uh, out residents from purchasing? This is a tough decision, and I mean, this is something that Colorado, uh, you know, was confronting with, you know, had to confront as well. And so, in Colorado, if you're a resident, you can buy up to one ounce at a time. If you're a non-resident, you, know, you can buy up to a quarter of an ounce at a time. But both Washington and Colorado are pretty uh, isolated places. I mean, when you think about Vermont or potentially in Washington D.C., I mean, there, uh, I mean, there are a lot of people that kind of live outside of those borders. And so, it, it's New York's going to want to pay really close attention to this, not only for what happens in Vermont. But maybe then what happens in New Hampshire? Because all of a sudden, if Vermont starts making serious money off this because you have people coming in from all these other states, then another state nearby might say, well, why don't we just take some of that? Why don't we just reduce the taxes a little bit and we could get some of that? And so this all could have, a big, have big implications for the state of New York. And like I said, I'm not entirely sure how this is all going to play out, but I think you're going to want to pay attention to it. Um, I also don't know how this is all going to play out nationally. Um, I think a lot's going to depend on what happens in 2016 with the presidential election. You know, as I said, for right now, the uh, the administration has decided that they're going to tolerate um, uh, for-profit businesses in these states. But realize these are just uh, federal guidelines. And at any moment, they could change. And whoever comes in in January of 2017, they could, you know, they could decide to continue with the current policy or they could do something radically different. At this point, we don't know. And also, we really don't know what's going to happen in Colorado, or I'm sorry, in California. I think this is, I mean, this California legalizing would be a game changer. And I think both sides realize this, both the pro-legalization and the anti-legalization folks. So I think both sides are going to be putting serious efforts and putting serious resources into the state. So like I said, if you think you're hearing a lot about legalization now, just wait till 2016. Thank you.
And it is an interesting question, you know, talking about how states are approaching this. I know Normal, which is the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws, I think, uh, their national chapter just revoked uh, one of the local chapters in the Midwest. I think it was Missouri because the head of that chapter had proposed a bill through to go through the Missouri government that would let marijuana go. It would be the full-on model. Yeah. And that's not the way Normal wants to do it. And so they have a, na- a new uh, Missouri Normal office that's going to try and regulate it like alcohol. It's also worth noting, uh, Bo mentioned Uruguay, and I spent uh, a, a week down in Montevideo last year. Um, and that is a state-controlled market. Um, it has not started yet, the, the, the sales, but it is fascinating. The president of Uruguay, or the former president, who's called Colorado's medical marijuana system a total sham, uh, he, he, he's a firm believer that if he can regulate the price of cannabis at $1 a gram, $2 a gram, that he will um, squash that black market in a way that hasn't been done in the legalization movement so far. But Moving on to our last introduction, this is Ari Hoffnung. He's the founder of Fiorello uh, Pharmaceuticals, and as I mentioned earlier, he has history in uh, you know both City Hall and uh, Wall Street. Thank you. Um, fascinating conversation. Listening to my fellow panelists, um, the term laboratories of democracy really comes to mind here. And that's a term uh, that U.S. Supreme Court Justice uh, Louis Brandeis used in a Supreme Court case. And I quote, a state may, if its citizens choose, serve as a laboratory and try novel social and economic experiments without risk to the rest of the country. Um, And uh, I know that many people across this country are really grateful for the pioneering work that you folks are doing in Colorado. So thank you. Thank you. You can clap for that. Um, I, uh, I'm a uh, longtime New Yorker. My, uh, I like bragging that I'm a fifth-generation New Yorker and a dad to three sixth-generation New Yorkers. Um, I guess when my family came here in the 1880s, these huge buildings were were probably not here. I mean, presumably the Hudson River was here. Um, But I'd like to think that, you know, when my great-great-grandparents on the Lower East Side went to the pharmacies in the late 1800s and early 1900s for different issues, very reasonable to assume that they purchased cannabis extracts. So in some sense, we're really have witnessed over the past seven to eight decades a historical anomaly where we haven't used cannabis as a medicine. Um, and uh, just a, a couple moments about my own background. Uh, you know, like Meg, not even five years ago, two years ago, I never thought that I would be on a, on a panel like this. Um, I was certainly exposed to marijuana. I, I went to college. I'm actually a proud CUNY alum, so it's great to be here at John Jay, really one of uh, the gems of of the CUNY system. Um, But uh, it's been a very interesting time for me personally. My background's in finance. I have an MBA in finance from NYU. Uh, I spent the first part of my career uh, working for an investment bank uh, that no longer exists. Uh, And uh, in 2009, I decided to follow my true passion into public service. 
Uh, I most recently served as the deputy comptroller of uh, the city, where I helped oversee the city's $70 billion budget, um, cash management, uh, and other technical things. Uh, a really exciting and, and personally and professionally rewarding part of my portfolio was running a small economic think tank. And we published research on a lot of different topics that you would expect from a taxpayer-funded uh, think tank, like the value of higher education, the affordable housing crisis in the city. But then in 2013, kind of listening to the stuff that was going on in Colorado, um, it really became part of a national conversation. What are, and there was a lot of questions about, well, what is New York State? What is New York City doing with marijuana? So we wrote two studies um, that I, I had the honor of working on. Uh, one was looking at the number of people in New York City, not New York State, in New York City that would benefit from the availability of medicinal marijuana. And uh, very conservatively, we pegged that number at 100,000 people. So there are 100,000 people across um, the five boroughs who would benefit from medical marijuana spanning conditions, cancer, HIV, AIDS, epilepsy, MS, um, and, and the list continues. So there's, uh, there's a lot at stake here from a public health perspective. Um, as a side part, I, I believe the numbers at least double in New York State, at least double. Colorado is actually the first state in the country where the enrollment has exceeded 2% of their population. Our population is 20 million. If we were to exceed uh, 2%, we would be in the 400,000 patient zone, right? Um, there are other reasons why Colorado's medicinal program is so robust. It's probably beyond the scope of, of these remarks. Um, but we're talking about lots and lots of people. And what, became, what began as a purely academic exercise for me working on these uh, research papers and publishing them very quickly became very personal. Um, I have a younger brother. Uh, he was 34 years old at the time. He lives in Israel, um, and he was diagnosed with stage 4 lymphoma cancer. And I know that, unfortunately, having a loved one who is suffering or you yourself suffering, is not unique to me. I mean, I would argue that every single person in this room, whether they themselves personally have suffered or not, they certainly, you know somebody in your family, people really close to you who you've seen suffering. And I'm not going to go through my family's painful medical history, but, um, but there's, been, there's been too many people who have suffered. And um, at every point in somebody's life, they're introduced for the first time, to having somebody close to them suffer. And for me, it was in 2013, and it was my, my younger brother. Um, and because he lives in Israel, where cannabis is available uh, for medicinal purposes and, and, and widely prescribed for medicinal purposes, his managing oncologist, before he started his very aggressive chemotherapy, basically said, his name is Donnie, he said, Donnie, here are the conventional meds. This is what I recommend to my patients in, 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 in your condition. 
I want you back here in a week or two if these conventional meds are not mitigating the side effects, and I'm going to give you cannabis because it's working wonders for many of my patients. Now, fortunately, my brother's doing a lot better. He didn't even need the cannabis, and the conventional meds worked for him. But for me, the point of the story is not that cannabis is a, is a magical medicine for people with all sorts of conditions. The point of the story is that cannabis ought to be part of the portfolio of options that physicians can discuss with their patients and collaboratively decide on, just like patients and physicians collaboratively decide on procedures, medications, and so on and so forth. And we sort of need to take the politics out of it and leave it to the scientists and to the doctors and the patients to make these decisions. So my brother's personal story led me to become an advocate for medical marijuana here in New York. Um, In 2013, I would talk to anybody who was willing to listen, and even some who were not, um, about medical marijuana and why it ought to be part of the portfolio of options that uh, physicians in New York State have. Uh, I was delighted uh, when it was passed by the Senate and Assembly and signed into law by Governor Cuomo in July. Uh, I, I don't, by the way, take any credit for it. I was one of thousands of thousands of voices of New Yorkers who have been working on this issue for many, many years. Um, but on a personal level, I always wanted to do something entrepreneurial. And when the law passed, I thought that the medical cannabis industry provides an interesting opportunity for somebody who is interested in finance, interested in business, but also is really interested um, in you know what we say in Hebrew is tikkun olam, which is sort of like repairing the world or social justice or socially responsible pal- policies. And I felt that in some unique way, the medical cannabis industry offered opportunities uh, to do both. Uh, that led me uh, with a group of physicians, pharmacists, and, and other folks to form a company that we call Fiorello Pharmaceuticals. For those of you who have studied the history, um, Fiorello LaGuardia, uh, our city's mayor in the 1930s, was a very interesting man. Um, and he was outspoken against the 1937 Marijuana Tax Act in Congress. Um, And he, in fact, convened a committee of uh, physicians with the New York Academy of Medicine to dispel a lot of the myths and the nonsensical information that was coming out of Congress at the time. So uh, it's in his honor uh, that we named the company. Um, And uh, I uh, also uh, learned that Fiorello means little flower in Italian. So uh, it... uh, it, it, it did seem like, uh, like a good name, and uh, I am uh, one of our company, Fiorello Pharmaceuticals, is one of the companies that is going to be applying for the medical cannabis cultivation and dispensary licenses that the New York State Department of Health is going to be awarding, hopefully, late 2015. Um, and uh, that certainly promises to be an interesting promise uh, process, uh, and I look forward to discussing that in more detail, uh, and, uh, and truly an honor to be here at John Jay. So thank you.
uh, since we are here to discuss criminal justice, I wanted to get the conversation moving. You know, I would love for our panel to discuss the costs involved with you know with legalizing it versus not legalizing it. You know, Brian, I know you've uh, represented patients, and Bo, I know you have opinions and history on the subject as well. So, I mean, what are those costs that that maybe aren't so evident or that perhaps aren't as obvious? Uh, well, I can just say for, uh, purely um, from an economic standpoint, it's, it's about uh, $3 billion that the states spend uh, on marijuana prohibition every year. The federal government spends uh, some resources as well. So it's it's not a insignificant uh, amount of money. Uh, and, um, but, you know, a lot of what, what I see is just the the impact on actual people's lives <laughs> from having those. I mean, we're, we're looking at millions and millions and millions of Americans over the years that, that have been uh, arrested and uh, prosecuted for marijuana crimes. And I mean, it's just sort of laughable in a way. I mean, you can look at our president and our prior president and most of the Supreme Court and anyone that's ever been to college, you know, can say like, yes, I know people that use marijuana. I've tried marijuana. Are these people criminals? I mean, it's just sort of, it's setting up a strange system where, you know, our, our citizens are, are sort of departing from, you know, these laws. And, 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 one, and I think it breeds sort of mistrust of the government to have these laws on, on the books that just don't appear to make sense. I mean, what's the purpose, right? Is the purpose of marijuana prohibition to prevent um, teens from getting marijuana? You know, is that the purpose, right? Like, what is the purpose of these laws? I mean, we know that for the last 40 years, teens in our country, according to federal surveys, have said that they consider marijuana to be uh, universally accessible universally accessible, you know, and, and our policy and all the money that we spend, and all the people that are arrested, the whole goal of that is to keep teens from getting this thing and they're saying it's accessible. I mean, we have to rethink these policies. I just think it's, you know, it's crucial. Um, I, I'd like to jump in here with some data for New York State. Um, when I published a report from New York City in 2013, um, we pegged the revenue and cost savings to the city of New York for regulating and taxing marijuana modeled in part after Colorado at $431 million. Last year, in 2014, I was invited uh, to a public forum in Albany uh, with members of the State Senate and Assembly and, offer, and was offered an opportunity to expand that economic analysis for the entire state. Um, it's very hard, uh, and, and you can certainly jump in here, it's very hard to definitively put a price on the cost side of uh, marijuana laws today. However, there are some data points. So in 2005, a famous report by uh, Professor uh, Marone uh, from uh, Harvard estimated that the state of New York can save $565 million a year by ending marijuana prohibition. These savings would be realized due to the reduction of police resources from the elimination of marijuana arrests, the reduction in prosecutorial and judicial resources from the elimination of marijuana prosecutions, and the reduction in correctional resources from the elimination of marijuana incarcerations. Uh, this report was endorsed by more than 500 leading economists. Uh, a similar report in 2013 published by the ACLU gave a range because of the difficulty of quantifying this um, and put New York at between $229 million and $1.1 billion. Um, for purposes of the analysis that I offered in Albany, I took the 565 figure, I took the $1.1 million, I said let's meet halfway, and I 
uh, pegged it at about 700 million. Uh, but whatever they are, um, they are material to the state, they are material to the city, um, and they are certainly material from a social justice perspective to the tens of thousands, if not more, prime, uh, disproportionately black and, and Latino young men who, are, who, who have suffered from these policies. So um, I think that um, many people would argue that even if there were, was not a cost savings, just from a social justice perspective, we ought to change the laws. Yeah, I spent a good chunk of time kind of looking at those numbers and trying to estimate the criminal, just the cost of the criminal justice system. And uh, when I first looked into this for California, there were two estimates out there. There was one estimate derived from the Myron uh, report, which suggested that the state of California was spending about $2 billion a year enforcing marijuana prohibition. There was another estimate out there put out by uh, the California chapter of Normal, put it closer to $200 million a year, an order of magnitude difference. Now, give me information on the costs on, or on arrests and what happens to adjudication, throw on some unit costs. You can get a pretty good idea about what the, what the ballpark figure should be. And in fact, I did some more advanced uh, analysis with John Calkins at Carnegie Mellon University. And our best estimate was that the state of California in 2010 was probably spending on the order of $200 million a year enforcing marijuana prohibition. Uh, for, but if, then if you just look at it for those who are age 21 and older, because most of these legalization proposals would still prohibit marijuana for those who are under 21, it was somewhere around the ballpark of $150 million. Um, that is a fair amount of money, but that's a lot different than $2 billion. You also have to realize that in California in 2011, they decriminalized marijuana possession, meaning that typically now it would just be a, a civil infraction and you would get a, a ticket. And uh, so I definitely think the costs are a bit lower then. Um, but this is still something that it, it, it matters in terms of the criminal justice but, aspect. Uh, but correct me if I'm wrong. Th th that type of analysis, you know, you correctly pointed out that uh, California decriminalized. It also narrowly focuses on today's costs rather than the long-term costs of people being impacted uh, at the workplace oh, oh. And, and inability to get jobs oh, oh, and things oh, exactly. like that. Exactly. No, no, I want to be very clear. When, we, when you think about the criminal justice costs associated with prohibition, there are the costs of the taxpayers associated with kind of actually arresting and adjudicating these individuals. That's one piece of this, and that's the part I was focused right. on. But no, as I said when I was speaking yeah. before, there are all these other consequences associated with getting a criminal record, even for something as small as marijuana possession, that can last throughout the lifetime. So, and those are much harder to quantify, yeah. and that's yeah, a, and that's the thing. And because they're harder to quantify, yeah, because they're harder to quantify, they don't get as much attention in some of these empirical uh, um, kind of analyses. But you're exactly right. I know some of my colleagues at the Post um, <clears throat> in early 2014 kind of compared 2012 to 2013 data because uh, we legalized it in, in late 2012 and it took effect at least the legality of it in, in December of 2012, uh, even though the sales themselves didn't start until 2014. Um, but what we saw analyzing the data from 2012 to 2013 was that uh, the number of citations written with mar marijuana as a reason that actually reached a, a certain Denver appellate court were down between 70 and 80%. Mm -hmm. And and it's fascinating to see what's happening in, in New York right now. I'm sure some of you saw the uh, data that came out, what was it, two weeks ago about 
you know, uh, the mayor asked for – can you speak? Can you yeah. Speak um, anybody who has followed marijuana arrests in New York City for the past uh, decade or so um, uh, and was troubled by the statistics was certainly delighted to see um, the material drop in marijuana arrests uh, under the de Blasio administration's uh, new policy. Um and I would say that uh, the data that is now in the public domain on marijuana arrests is very encouraging. And I think that folks in the advocacy communities who are passionate about these issues, we hope that this trend continues. I mean, we have years and years of data of tens of thousands of people being arrested annually. Um, and a month or two is encouraging, but it's really to, to become a, a real trend that needs to continue into the future. Uh, and, and I am quite confident that under this administration it will. We are going to move to questions for you guys. We have, I think, about 20, 25 minutes. So uh, if you have a question for the entire panel or individual members of the panel, please just uh, raise your hand. Let's get this going. Uh, Sarah, in the sweater right here. I just did a couple stories about this, so I'll just talk a little bit. Uh, the first piece I did was uh, a profile on a guy who had been growing and, and selling for 10 years, and he was priced out of the market because of Colorado's medical system and impending recreational system. He was used to getting X per ounce. I think it was 375 And as soon as that price dropped to 250 because of the prevalence of legal marijuana, um, he had to get out, and he went back to school, and he's now in the finance sector. So <laughs> it, was, um, it was a really fun story to write. And uh, the other one was talking to agencies within the state about what the black market is. And it's not – you know, what they had to say is that it's not what we used to think of it as. It's not the guy on the street corner. Now the black market is people um, nestling themselves into areas of famil familiarity um, because you can only grow, sell this drug – in certain neighborhoods, uh, in, in all of these locations, you know, it has to be a certain number of feet away from schools and daycare centers. And so what you have is you have illegal businesses popping up in the middle of a bunch of legal businesses. So an illegal grow um, among legal cultivation centers, and they're hoping to fly under the radar and eventually take that product and ship it out of state. And that seems to be the black market that most of these agencies are concerned about. But I would love to open that up to the panel. We have a very robust black market in the state of Colorado and um, most of us in the industry feel that it comes out of sort of the caregiver model that uh, developed over the last and Brian can correct me if I'm wrong but there are a number of caregivers in the state that are that have formed either co-ops or are growing in excess of what the allotment supposedly is and that's really the profile of the black market. I think that this year, 2015, that is going to be one. Of, that is one of the issues that the General Assembly is looking hard at 
Um, and it's it's very difficult to get your arms around it and regulate it because the legitimate caregivers um, are very passionate about the patients who they're growing for and how they fit into the system. And those who style themselves as caregivers um, keep a very low profile. But uh, when, you know, some of the, many of the problems that we had and some of the, the stories that get written are a direct result of some of the, the homegrown operations that uh, we see. And I'd love to hear Brian's thought on this because of uh, his involvement with patients and advocacy groups. Sure, yeah, and I think um, from my perspective, I think the, the black market or the underground market, if you will, is is waning in Colorado. I think there's still an underground market, and we've only had legal marijuana for about a year, year and a half. Um, but it's on its way out, um, and, and you know this. I think you have to look at this a little more globally. It's sort of it's like alcohol prohibition, right? When you know we had this vibrant underground market with Al Capone and, and others who were selling this product that was illegal, and then the you know the government made it illegal, and then sort of state by state they adopted and changed their laws, and uh, and alcohol you know ultimately is now what it is today. But you know, did those underground criminals go away immediately? You know, or did it take a little time? for uh, you know, the consumer to alter their purchasing habits. And I think that's what we're seeing around marijuana. It's like people have been buying marijuana from their buddy's dorm room uh, or the street corner of the park for decades and decades and decades. And now we have these stores where you can go into these stores and it's a labeled product and you know what you're buying, you know what the blend is and what the THC is and blah, blah, blah. You know how it's grown and it's not sprayed with pesticides. And that is the future, frankly. I mean, people are not going to go back to purchasing on street corners. Um, when you have these regulated stores in front of you. So I think over time, uh, you know, we'll see that shift. But I mean, the problem is, right, there certainly continues to be a robust illegal marijuana market in our country because a lot of states don't have the same laws as Colorado does. Uh, again, we have a couple other states that have adopted this, but until all the states have some degree of legal marijuana, they'll be trafficking back and forth. It, it would seem to be from an economic perspective, simply put, there, there are three ways to deal with the black market in Colorado. One is that the larger producers are going to be able to realize such economies of scale that their cost of production on a per ounce basis is going to dip below the, uh, what, uh, what black market uh, uh, organizations are able to offer the customers. Once that happens and it's cheaper to buy marijuana in a dispensary, the black market disappears. Um, another option uh, is to lower taxes. Uh, certainly the 25 or is it 30 percent um, tax range that is imposed in some perverse way um, encourages the black market um, to remain in place for consumers who uh, seek to buy non-taxed marijuana. And then thirdly, um, you could also dedicate additional law enforcement resources um, to closing down uh, the black market operators. So there, there, there's a couple ways to handle that. And if I could just follow up, uh, with respect to taxation, that's a really tough issue. Uh, no, you know, nobody knows the best way to tax marijuana. And we spend a lot of time, probably that report has more written about marijuana taxes than any other document that's ever been written, kind of thinking through all of the different uh, ways that you can go about doing it, doing it as a fun ad valorem, as a function of the price, yeah. as a function of the weight, uh, potentially as uh, a function of THC. Um, and so, like, as I said, nobody knows, and, you know, we are going to get some new data points because uh, while in Colorado and Washington you've got these ad valorem taxes, in Alaska and in Oregon you're going to have a weight-based tax. You know, in Alaska it's going to be $50 an ounce. So, I mean, I think we're going to be able to learn from those experiments. Um, but the one thing you're going, I think to keep in mind when you're designing one of these regimes 
is you really want to have uh, design flexibility in, especially with respect to taxation, because it could be that maybe if, if your goal, and there could be multiple policy goals for wanting to legalize, but if your goal really is to get rid of the black market, what you may want to do is have a very small tax early on, but then over time as there's more competition and you drive down those production and distribution costs, then you can begin applying more of a tax. The bottom line is that you want to make sure that you have the ability to not only change those rates, but also potentially change the base. Mm -hmm. Because what we think may be the best way to tax, or, or what some people think is the best way to tax right now, we may learn in five to ten years that's not the right way to do it. And you want to make sure that you can kind of build that knowledge in. Uh, we have time for a couple more questions. So uh, why don't we go here front row? Okay, uh, right here, row three. Yeah, I can just speak to it. Yeah, I, I can speak for, uh, from my perspective. In, in Colorado, when we, we wrote the legalization law, we, we thought about that, right? Because there's been hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people in our state that have been you know, arrested for marijuana in the past. Some are in jail and some not. And, and it, what it comes down to is it's a separation of powers issue. Like we couldn't – that's an executive function by and large. Like only the executive, the governor, who have you, can expunge people's records, right? And we couldn't actually do it via, uh, via voter ballot, a ballot initiative via the legislative process. So. Brian, can you talk about that interesting thing that did happen where uh, in part of the state where they were talking about oh, where they were talking about potentially uh, what was happening last year when when and when the state was discussing potentially letting people go who had previously had marijuana violations and and those marijuana violations would no longer have been violations. Do you remember that? Kind of, yeah. I mean, this is. I mean, it's, no, it, yeah, it's it's. <laughs> It's just a, it's a very interesting issue, right, because we're sort of we've, – we've made, I think, a compelling case why, from social justice perspective, we should stop arresting people. But that there's all those folks that have preexisting arrests on their record. And, and we actually pushed this in the court system in Colorado to try to address that. And the sort of takeaway was if you were in the middle of your trial, essentially in the middle of the criminal justice system, hadn't pled out when the voters voted to legalize marijuana – um, then you could expunge that, and that would sort of they would stop the prosecution. That could come off your record. But if you had, you know, for the 80 years prior to that had been busted, um, yeah, they, they couldn't address it through the court system. Yeah, not a ton, you know, not a ton. Oh, nationally, I don't exactly know. But, I mean, there's not, other than in places like Texas and Louisiana, there's not a ton of people that are going to jail for, for marijuana. Um, we often see probation revocations, parole revocations, where people have a, a hot uh, urine test for it, marijuana and get thrown back in, in jail or something like that. But, it, it you know, really it's not a, a ton of people. I mean, Bo, can you speak to yeah, that? Yeah, I, I think the last numbers I saw uh, were close to 20,000 nationally. Mm -hmm. But realize that's mostly for distribution and trafficking. You know, in most places when you get picked up for possession, it you know, it's a civil offense. Pardon? Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, there still are people that are being incarcerated, you know, even, even with new sentences. 
Uh, I mean, in, you know, because most of the country, I mean, it hasn't been legalized. And so, but, it, but in terms of, if you look at everyone who's in, uh, who's behind bars uh, for drug offenses, marijuana is a very small piece of that. It's mostly cocaine and heroin. All right, another question in the back. I can I can uh, maybe start the conversation on that. I guess the um, disconnect for me is that tobacco causes cancer and marijuana does not. So there's really no credible data that shows marijuana causes cancer. In fact, it has some sort of anti-cancer properties. So um, I, I don't think it's fair to to say that there's. I'm not. I'm just not clear what the public health threat you're referring to is. Um, and I think comparing the two is a little, I don't want to say disingenuous, but it's just a little confusing, right? Now, having said that, you know, we do have a new industry, right? This industry previously was handled by cartels in the black market. Now it's being handled by businesses that I represent, that Meg represents. Um, and it's a pivotal time in history, right? Are they going to uh, engage in marketing like Joe Camel, or are they going to be responsible for what they're doing? Um, I work with, like, our, our law firm represents hundreds of these marijuana businesses, and I think by and large, like, they're pretty responsible folks. Like they want to, uh, they want to be, have a sustainable long-term business, and they realize that if they're focusing on cartoon ads or whatever it is, um, that they're going to be shut down. You know, this is just too much of a. Uh, there's too much of a microscope going on in, in terms of these activities. And you know, Meg spoke earlier about some of the uh, act- activities that just voluntarily businesses are engaging in. We passed out some literature um, about smart consumption. You know, and, and I think that this is a, an area where. You know, these businesses can actually lead instead of, you know, waiting for the government to sort of tell them firmly what the, what the regulations are. Well, and I think it's it, – okay, sure.
Well, I can tell you this, in order to actually be in the legal industry, you, uh, you can't have certain criminal convictions on your record. So anyone that's at any of these stores in Colorado and other places has um, to pass background checks and, and, and so forth. So um, it's kind of hard to say. You know, uh, I know that there are a fair amount of people that you know, are subject matter experts, you know, have been doing this for decades and are now coming into the regulated market, but it, it's sort of incumbent upon them not to have certain criminal convictions. And briefly, I can say we have a story coming up this week on that very issue. Like, does having a history in the black market make you a better candidate for a job in the legal market? And there are pros and cons, uh, and, and some of which surprised me. Uh, so definitely check mm. it out. <laughs> Tease. <laughs> yes, Kirsten Westavalli from TheRoot.com. Um, my question is really for Brian Vicente. Um, for the African-American journalists in our communities, the story is different. Um, what I was talking about as far as unemployment, underemployment that led to the sale of marijuana in our communities, how broken windows, zero tolerance, and stop and frisk policing that left Eric Garner, Marley Graham, and too many others dead, um, how it is used to vilify black victims such as Trayvon Martin from the grave, no matter how minuscule the amount. Um, and we also talk about how it's kind of... The judicial system has torn black families apart. There's even racialized language, weed versus pot. So my question for you is, how do we make sure that the social justice aspects of legalization is not obscured by the business aspects of it? And do you feel that a sharp focus on the racial aspects would affect the current support of legalization efforts when the myth of black criminality is so entrenched in our culture? Brian. Um. Yeah, and you know, uh, Michelle Alexander's written sort of passionately about this as well. And, um, you know, there's a critique out there that I think is legitimate that, you know, what we did in, in Colorado and now several other states is change criminal laws, right? Those criminal laws were definitely disproportionately affecting black people, but also Latinos and others and young people, frankly. Um, so that, that's positive, right? But now there's this economic opportunity. And, and it seems like, by and large, African Americans are kind of being left out of like, opening these businesses, they're kind of capital intensive, you know, and, and so I'm not, honestly, I'm not really sure how to address that piece um, other than job fairs and, and so forth. But I would note that, you know, each, so there's 23 medical marijuana states and, and it's fun for a lawyer because we, we have offices around the country. And so I get to learn about the laws in, in different states and uh, Maryland right now uh, and some other states have done this is they, uh, while they're allowing medical marijuana businesses to open up for the first time ever, um, they're having a cri like a merit-based criteria, and Maryland and a couple other states are saying, you know, if you have a prominent person of color on your uh, application to start this business, you're given kind of increased points. So it's sort of, you know, interesting development there. Do you have any thoughts? Right, give each of the speakers maybe one minute to make closing thoughts. Uh, on that particular question, I don't. I know that um, CBA has um, a couple of black leaders in the uh, trade association, and Wanda James in particular, who's very well known um, and is very passionate about this subject. Um, you know, and I think it speaks to um, that issue, not just in marijuana, but, you know, in other, in other endeavors. So. If I could just clarify, Keith, a question a little bit more about the comments. Can you address the journalists about what, what you'd like to see Oh. 
since I've spent the last since I've spent the last year focusing on edibles, labeling, and packaging, um, I'd just like to say Maureen Dowd uh, did us no favors <laughs> when she sat in her hotel room and consumed that cookies. But but what she did do is she sparked, I think, a discussion, and which resulted in some really significantly good outcomes as to, I mean, she highlighted the novice consumer experience. So, I mean, she's made a lot of work, but I think she's also uh, helped us resolve some, some, some problems. Yeah. yeah. I've got a few recommendations for those that are writing on this topic. Uh, you're going to continue to hear people, you know, talk about these analyses where they're going to look at something that happened in Colorado or Washington in 2013 compared to what happened in 2014 and attribute all of it to marijuana legalization. We saw this with respect to crime in Colorado. Depending on what crimes you were looking at, they were going up or going down. When you're confronted with those press releases, you need to ask the people that were writing those reports, what's the counterfactual? That is, there could have been other things happening there in the state that could have been driven, driving that, not necessarily marijuana legalization. So what happened in other states that didn't have legalization? It's a very simple question, but you need to ask it. The other thing I would recommend is don't necessarily get caught up in the study of the day. I mean, this is such a hot topic. Everyone clicks on it that anytime any new report comes out or any new study, it gets a lot of attention. I think the good reporters will go beyond that and say, wow, a new study came out suggesting X, Y, and Z because of marijuana. However, there have been 13 meta-analyses that have already been done on this topic, which suggests that most of the literature says A, B, or C. So let's just kind of put that into context. Once again, I think that's the difference between those that are just trying to get headlines and those that are actually going to be good reporters. I'll jump in right there since we have a tie in journalism. Uh, I couldn't back that up enough because it's true. Once, once the uh, you know we got past the few first few months of 2014, then reporters around the country could compare uh, January through March 2014 to the previous year, and 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 frankly, a lot of those pieces that came out were great clickbait, but they were light on substance. And and when we wrote a significantly less sexy headline about yeah, some crime is down, some crime is up, and when you talk to the chief of Den Denver Police, he'll tell you that. That has nothing to do with marijuana, and it has everything to do with the economy, and we won't have standardized, uh, realistic figures on this for five to ten years. Um, and so, yeah, completeness in reporting, um, and, and which all of you all are doing if you're here already. So uh, I back that up. Um, not so much of a recommendation, but I do want to say thank you to members of the media who have been covering this. Um, I think that you are a critical serve a real critical function um, in this uh, amazing policy change that is uh, sweeping our country. Um, and if uh, those of you who use the word pot could uh, use the word marijuana or cannabis instead, I'd personally be grateful. So please join me in thanking uh, Ricardo, Brian, Meg, Bo, and Ari for a wonderful start. I hope you've got lots of rich material. Thank you, guys. Um, so I have some bad news and some good news. Um, I've just been told that the mayor has canceled. Uh, apparently he's sick. Uh, and so the good news is that we have now time for those of you who are starving for lunch. Um, so we're going to have a lunch down in the uh, sixth floor, the same place we had lunch yesterday, I believe. And we're going to come back up here to begin our workshop part of the um, conference You'd be glad to know we're almost at an end. Uh, is everyone exhausted? 
Raise your hand if you're not. And you're all, there's a guy who's, okay, see you in a second.